What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Thank you for tuning in. This is week three. I'm getting pretty consistent, aren't I? Um, today, I got Kelly Cole on the show. He is a good friend. He is an actor. He is a DJ. He is the number one curator of vintage t-shirts out there. And um, just an all-around great guy. We talk about his life in vintage stores he's owned. Talk about his early days as a club kid in New York City. Talk about mental health even. It's a great episode. Hope you enjoy. I'm not going to keep you on this intro very long. We're going to dive right into it. But if you want to shop EffersonFrankVintage.com, go ahead, be my guest. But first, listen to this episode. My man, Kelly Cole, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, this is long overdue. You've been one of our ace customers at the Rose Bowl from since we've gone there. And, you know, in the early days, we became good friends. You've been a great friend to myself and Jesse. Um, it's funny, too, because, like, I probably see you more than I see, like, a lot of my childhood friends just because of the way, like, we're in L.A. once a month hanging out, you know? Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, and you, you know, you have a very colorful – you have had a colorful life, man. You've had, a like, an amazing life filled with all kinds of different things. Reading through your bio, you know, actor, designer, DJ, and curator is what I know you as – in our time as friends. Um, so I'm excited to get into this conversation because there's a lot of cool topics to cover. There's a lot of ground here. We can go in a hundred different ways, but before we jump into it, something really stuck out on your bio to me. You DJed Avril Lavigne's wedding. Her first wedding. Yeah. So that was my question. This is, we're talking Chad Kroger or are we talking uh, Derek Wibley. Derek Wibley. The some 41. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I think this is a very this is this is, this is something my listeners are going to want to know. <laughs> really? But in all <laughs> I don't I don't know. I have no idea. You had so much on your on your on your bio here to go over. It's crazy. Um and um Let's just let's just jump in here, man. Let's okay. just jump in, okay? We're going to start at the beginning. You want an so, anecdote about Avril Lavigne's wedding? I do. I love an anecdote. Okay, I think it was in Santa Barbara, and I know I didn't sign any kind of NDA, so I can tell this. So it, it, it was bizarre, but the, the one thing that I remember is that they had the father-daughter <laughs> dance, and they had requested a song. They requested um, – Candy Girl by 
Okay. I think they said Frankie Valley, and so I played the song "Candy Girl" by Frankie Valley, and they were like, "No, no, no, wait!" They stopped the father daughter dance. They were like, "That's not the song. We wanted, uh, they wanted, uh, uh, you know, the song, honey, dan, 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 dan. I f- I'm forgetting what it is now. The song where the chorus, you are my, my candy can-. but girl. That, the title of that song is not Candy Girl. It's uh. I forget. But anyway, that was the memory this, I have of that wedding. You got to be prepared. Not you, but they got to be prepared <laughs> with their song choice. Exactly. Come on. Exactly. Uh, so that's interesting. How often are you signing NDAs at these at these events? Probably very often, eh? Um, not very often, no. Um, okay. And look, a few years ago, actually, the one time I did, I think I signed – maybe twice in all of those kinds of events that I've done. Um, but a few years ago, this party planner that I worked with a lot um, called me and said, listen, I, I just want you to say yes to this gig. Cause I know you'll say no if I tell you who it is. And she's really good to me. And so I was like, okay, yes. And she goes, uh, all right. So I, it's the Kardashians, right? And it's the baby shower of, I can't remember which one of the Jenner girls. Um, and I was like, okay, fine, cool. So I go to this house and it was surreal because I get there and, uh, Kim Kardashian is, is putting out the cards for the lunch for the people at the table. And she turned and it's just her. And she turns to me and says, Oh, Hey Kelly. And I'm like, how does she know who I am? Um, and so, I go set up and they're like, Oh, you have to sign this NDA. And so I'm like, all right, fine. And I sign it. And then I just didn't, I didn't even think about it, but like halfway through the party, the cameras come in, they're shooting the show. And I was like, Oh shit. And I didn't realize I had signed a release as well as an NDA <laughs> to be on the show. Yeah. So. Yeah. Fully. You're just like, you're thinking that you're not supposed to divulge the Kardashian secrets or stories from the, the shower. And all of a sudden, they're throwing you up on the show. Exactly. So I think I appeared uh, on an episode, but I don't know. I, I never saw it. If anybody knows out there, if anybody's seen <laughs> Kelly Cole on that episode, and you may have seen Kelly Cole on a number of other TV shows or movies, which we will we will touch on in this episode for sure. But we want to go back to the New York days, Kelly. Okay. I think that's very interesting. You were um, – a personality and a staple in the New York club scene. Mm-hmm. And I don't really have like much uh, reference for that era. I've never was there. I'm a little bit younger than you. And I, like what I picture is like the scene in kids when they're all partying in the club, like New York. Um, I don't know. Give us like the, that kind of like paint the scene and then like who was there during that time and like get into that era. Well, it was a bit like that. I guess I can't remember that scene from kids, but um, I was 17 when I moved to New York. Uh, I was an actor. Uh, I was doing a lot of stage stuff in the Midwest and some film and TV and stuff. But I moved to New York. I had an agent. Um, I went and looked at the school that I had a scholarship at in southern Indiana for theater. And I was like, I, I'm not I can't stay in this town right now. I have to go to New York and, and just a small town. I was just not able to do that. I was already like my head was already in the city. And I'd been to New York a couple times, right. To visit. Um, so I, I go to New York and, you know, I started working, but I got, it was very slow, you know, in the beginning. Um, 
and it was 1988 and um, I didn't really have any friends. So I, I started going out to clubs and, and I met this kid, um, Michael Alec, who was like the, the ringleader of this group of club kids. And I just sort of folded into that whole world and, you know, started, you know, I guess originally I started like I was hired like to distribute flyers. So we'd go out to clubs and like hand out flyers. And then I became like a door person and then I became a promoter and, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a crazy time. Um, you know, and then, and then later in the mid nineties, I, so I, so I kind of graduated out of that scene. Um, I had a very tumultuous time with, you know, substances and, and everything that goes along with that. Um, ended up homeless when I was 19, uh, and then kind of got it together, went back to the city was like, sort of, uh, I was, I was working in clubs again, but, but like I had a different sort of, sort of focus on it. I was like really working hard and promote, you know, promoting parties. Um, and eventually opened a club. I was a partner in a club that opened in the fall of 95. And, uh, that club was like, a crazy success. And, you know, we had, um, it's called spy. It was in Soho and, and Soho was very different than, uh, it wasn't like a mall. It was still kind of like, um, at night, especially it was very, you know, desolate. And so it was a great place to have a club. Um, and yeah, that, so that club was very, uh, very successful. And, and, and my life just, you know, was, was, uh, at that time, uh, you know, I was surrounded by all these, uh, celebrities and all this exciting personality. It was just a really fun time and, you know, an incredible experience. Um, so yeah. So were you still, were you still get, were you, you had the agent still and you're still kind of dabbling and getting jobs in theater yeah. and, and movies and things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, so I was, I was working, um, uh, I was doing, um, a lot of like episodic TV. I was on a couple different episodes of New York undercover one in which I co-starred with Mackay Pfeiffer, which is a really crazy one where we played these like cat burglars in Manhattan. It was a, that was a fun one. Um, I did a lot of like music videos and indie films. And, um, uh, every time I see Weatherspoon and he introduces me to somebody, he's always like, yo, he was in the junior mafia video. Cause I'm in the, I'm in the, the, the player's anthem and the, uh, <laughs> And in the uh, the one with Aaliyah. That's funny that he introduces you like that. Yeah, or he's like, yo, you know, he's – yeah, he, he always brings it up. Or he – not always, but he does bring it up. So give us some uh, some stories. You had once told me – I don't even know the story, but you told me that you saw somebody get stabbed in the face in a club in New York. Do I remember that right? Yeah, I saw somebody get hit with a hatchet in – um, Okay. Even crazier. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty gnarly. Uh, so yeah, I was at a club called the world, which, uh, was a kind of a legendary place. Uh, it was like a, a music venue and uh, a club and like an early, like, um, one of the places where like house music was incubated. It was like, um, all those great early DJs played there. And, and it was kind of a, it was a crazy place because it kind of didn't at times even have licenses. And, you know, it was just kind of this like outlaw place, which you could never imagine happening in the world today. Um, and it's not a very well documented place. There's there's some photos online and I can I can send you some. But it was just an anarchic place. Like, you know, it was like 
everybody it was like a real melting pot so you had like punks and trans and 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 mods and goths and and uh you know like lower east side like you know puerto rican like thugs and like hip-hop kids and it was a real real melting pot and the place was like decrepit and falling apart and i think it was open as a club from 86 until it closed on new year's eve of 89 and that's a whole other story public enemy played that night and i worked and i was i was held up at gunpoint on the way to the show and I actually got the kids into the show that held me up. It's a, that's a whole other crazy story. But what? so like, yeah, uh, we're going to need that one. then. <laughs> so, too. so, so like in, I think it was in, it was like a month before that. Um, I was, I was standing watching these kids. Like I was t- in a conversation and I watched this kid go up to these like two, like at the time, like, they were like neighborhood, like Puerto Rican thug kids. Right. And they were like all in that, like B-boy energy. Like, and I was just watching these kids, like kind of staring blankly while the two people I was talking to, or I was in conversation with, I wasn't talking, were talking to one another and I was staring forward and I see this, this kid. So there were these kids that were like these Latino kids at that time that were like in a, that were around like the kind of club kids scene that had, they would dress in this, like, I think it was like kind of, it was called like a new romantic look. Right. So they would wear like ruffled shirts and, and like shorts and um, they would slick their hair back or like have like, it was a whole look. And they wore these like big clunky, like um, I forget the brand of shoes when they would put these big like ribbon laces in them. It was just this particular look that kids did. Right. And there were a lot of these kids around. So I saw this kid that I kind of had seen around and he, he walks up to these two kids and he says something to them and they walk away and then they come back and they're talking to him for a second. And I'm just staring, watching this. And the one kid pulls a hatchet out and hits the kid in the head with it. And I was looking at it like, did I really just see that happen? Like inside this club, like what the fuck? And so, so the, the story goes that I, the club was very, you know, f- fucked up. And I guess the, the doors on the women's bathrooms had been ripped off on the stalls. And this girl was in there using the bathroom and these kids came in and they were all dusted and they were like, Oh, like, like fucking with her while she was sitting on the toilet. And she went and told her brother and he went and asked them to apologize to her. And that was what happened. Like they just were, you know, so they eventually, so the, so the, so they, they sit the kid down on a bench, right? And he's sitting there with the ax in his head. And I walk over, like, looking, like, tr- like tripping, like, what the fuck, right? Yeah, what the fuck? And so That's crazy. they call an ambulance. The ambulance comes. <laughs> and now the club hasn't stopped. Like, it's still going. You know, like, the you know, there's still music. Like, it didn't shut everything down. So, you know, the paramedics come in. They get the kid. They bring him out. And they're trying to keep the ax in, in his head because they're like, we have to do this at the hospital, you know, whatever. So – as they're putting him in the ambulance, the, the axe actually came out and, and I guess eventually the kid died and they, they found these, the, they found the two kids that did it easily. Fuck. Um, but that was that. That's you know? wild, man. It was, and I guess back then 
there's no door check for this kind of well, thing. No one's frisking the, you down. And again, the, the lunatics were in charge of the asylum. Like they, all the guys working security were like neighborhood like drug dealers, basically. I mean, it, 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 I can't describe how crazy it was. It was like, you know, there were times when like, like I saw the butthole surfers play there and, and they would bring in like the, this guy, Neil Cohen would rent the club. He was, he was a guy that owned the Ritz um, and had gone to prison for tax evasion and he'd just gotten out. And so he was, he didn't have a club yet or wait, no, he had the, he, he had taken over the space that was studio 54 and it was the new Ritz and they started doing shows there. Um, but he was doing other, he was like, he was like doing rentals of other clubs and he would do the world. He would do put like the, the more dangerous shows. And so like they would bring in a whole security team and the whole thing. But, um, but on most nights it was just this like ragtag kind of janky security force that was running it. It was, it was really, yeah, really I'm crazy. assuming if you're like connected, they probably get people into like, they're connected to the drug dealers in there, paying them off to be in the club and everything else. And totally. I mean, so, and they weren't, there was no metal detectors, you know? So it was, and, and, and they're yeah. not going to pat down their homies or kids that they know, you know? And I don't think they were patting anybody down at that time. So, so tell us how, how you got these kids who held you up into the club. So I was coming, I mean, I was, I was, uh, definitely doing a lot of, uh, uh, substances at that time. And I lived on Ridge street, which is just below. So, so the world was on second street between Avenue B and Avenue C. And there's a little gas station right in front of it before Houston street. So like second street ends at Avenue C and then there's house Houston is there. There's no first street that doesn't start until maybe, uh, Avenue a. So anyway, I lived on Ridge, which is just like below Houston, um, in front of Avenue C. I think it's like a half block over and down. And so I, I was in charge of the green room that night. So like I had to go and like, whenever Neil Cohen rented the club, I would, I would get like a, a some assigned some job to do and usually it was to to do the green room. So I would be in charge of like making sure there was like whatever the back line was for the, you know, the, I mean the, the, the rider like snacks or whatever. And um, so I'd gone there earlier in the day and then I went back to my apartment and was getting high. And so I can't, I knew it, like I had to be back at the club at like whatever time it was eight o'clock or whatever. So I'm going out. Uh, I come up Ridge street and I see these two kids and the kid, I don't know what kind of a gun it was, but it was a large gun. And he like swings it up at my head and, and they're like, yo, give, give us your money, whatever. And, uh, and I literally said to them, I, I just like instinctively, I was like, uh, I work at the world. I don't have any money because we barely got paid. You know, it was like, it was the craziest thing. Like people would keep coming back to work, but never got paid. And, and uh, I was like the the assistant to the owner. So, you know, the, I felt like, you know, I mean, I was a junkie basically. So like, you know, I couldn't work anywhere else for that, for the most part at that point in my, um, in, in my life. Um, so I said that, right. Um, and the the one kid recognized me. He was like, yo, that's, um, 
oh, yo, that's a, uh, and he said a couple other names, these other two guys that I work with. And he was like, no, Kelly from the world. Like there were these like Puerto Rican kids. And, um, and, and so the other kid kind of lowers the gun and I'm like, think, think, say something. Right. And I'm like, yo, what are you guys doing? Like, you, you know, like you're going to get killed out here or whatever. This is crazy. Like you're not thugs or whatever. And they kind of like hung their heads and they were like, yo, we're just trying to get money to get into the public enemy show. You know, it's new year's Eve and like, we wanted to go party and whatever. And, and I was like, okay, I'll get you in. And they're like, for real. And so we go, we go like at that time, like, and maybe still, but I doubt it. They, they used to have the, the, like there were all these delis. There was a network of delis in the, on the lower East side that would sell, cocaine basically some of them sold heroin but they sold cocaine mainly and and what you would do is you go in and you had to kind of be known and you'd say i want a 20 or 40 and they give you two 20s and they would put it like you bring like a roll of scott tissue toilet paper up to the counter and they'd put it in there and put in in the middle of it and put it in a bag and um so we went to one of those delis and and they stashed the gun and then they came with me into the show and I got, I literally got them in the guys, the kids that just held me up. That's wild, man. I mean, that's crazy that your club status can get you out of predicaments like that. So like, are we talking you at, in this era, like you, it seems like you were pretty well known in the scene. Like you could cruise to any club and they knew Kelly Cole. Like you were, you were a staple in this world. Well, at, before that, um, yeah, in a way. And, but by that time I was, you know, I, I was kind of so, um, I was maybe not somebody that people were excited to see because of my cocaine use, you know, I was a bit of a mess by that point. And so the world was really the only place that, you know, I did, yeah, I did go to other places and, you know, if you were, you know, kind of, I knew all the doormen and stuff, but yeah, they weren't so excited to see me, but at that, at that time, but then later, you know, I kind of, like after I kind of got my act together and, you know, um, it, it, maybe they were, maybe they were a little more excited to see me. So what, what was that? Like the homelessness eventually you came back to New York. Did you like leave? I did. I went away. Um, I went away and I went to, uh, to like a rehab, um, at that, okay. a, shortly after that, like six months after that event. And then how was that to come back to that scene and work in that scene again? Um, it was, it was, it was okay. Like I wasn't really that like tempted, you know, like I had a few years where I was, I was, I was pretty good. And then again, like after spy opened, you know, I was living like a rock star and, you know, it was just, uh, I, I, things got pretty rocky again for a little while. Um, cause the so, temptation- yeah, so that, that first rehab wasn't like your, your end all. No. Cause I, I've known you, I've known you as sober Cali, like right. the whole time I've known you. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah, you're saying that that was like you, you had some other time. So let's, let's move into that then. So you, you moved eventually to LA, um, opened your store lo-fi, got in the vintage business because you were not in the vintage business in New York, correct? No, I was always somebody who like, I wore vintage. Um, I, from the eighties, like from when I was a teenager, I was into like gabardines and stuff like that back then. And then I got into like wearing like t-shirts and, um, I never really wore vintage denim so much, but like a lot of jackets, leather jackets, um, workwear jackets and stuff. There was a great, 
in the 90s, there was this great thrift store in Patterson, New Jersey called Red, White, and Blue. And we would go there and fill bags full of stuff and just bring it back to Manhattan and like give it to people. Like if, you know, I would buy everything I saw that was, stuff was so cheap. Um, but I never thought of it like something to do as a, as a business um, until when I moved here, um, I was, I started working as an actor semi-regularly. Um, I got a job in a play that lasted for 10 months. And, um, during that time I was kind of like, so nine 11 had happened and, and it kind of shook the business quite a bit. And there were all these shakeups at the agency I was with. And, and I was like, it, it was just, things just got really complicated. And in that time I had learned about vintage. I was at the Rose bowl, right. In 2001. And I bought a pair of biggie, um, five seventeens. And I just, I saw them hanging and I was like, what is that? This denim is incredible. Like I just started looking at it and I just got, it's weird to say, but it just kind of like captivated me, drew me in. So then, um, I went into the original denim doctors on third street and I'd seen that they had, you know, like they just had all this incredible denim in there. And, and so I was like looking at that and, and my curiosity just got peaked. And, and then I saw that they had a, they had a few vintage t-shirts on the wall and I was like, I was really into that, you know, and then I saw that like Fred Siegel had some vintage t-shirts and I was like, well, and then there was that store on Melrose, the world of vintage t-shirts. So I went in there and I was like, I just was like absorbing all this information. And, um, I'd always, I was like, I, I've always been into vintage leather and motorcycle jackets and stuff. Um, and I knew like I'd been in what comes around, goes around in New York. And I saw that they, they had vintage t-shirts, but what ended up happening was I was when, during the course of doing that play, I was like, I'm going to take a break from being an actor and I want to do something that I can do every day without someone telling me that I can or can't do it, you know? And, yeah, totally. and I was like, um, I, 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 I had this concept, like I didn't want to, um, do a, a club or a restaurant. Cause after spy, I owned, I owned a restaurant in New York. Also, I was a partner in a restaurant and that's wow. a beast of a business. And I, I did, you know, I enjoyed like aspects of it, but so everybody was like, you should open a club. You should open a restaurant. And I was like, well, I don't really, I'm not that like socially dialed in in LA to, to, to do that really. And I don't want to do that. I don't, I didn't want to do anything that had to do with liquor really. Um, and so, so I just, was, it was part of your move out of New York to LA just for like a change of scenery. You're going, you're you're sober at this point. You didn't yeah. want to be in the club scene anymore and just needed to get out. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I was in the club scene cause I was DJing, right? So, so I was DJing like three or four nights a week, but having that relationship to it was different than being a promoter and different, you know, I was, I had the restaurant and, so I would spend a few hours there every day and then I would go work, you know, DJ starting at like 10 at night. So, so my life was still very much a part of that, but there was a, like a, okay. a confluence of events that brought me to LA was that, that, um, uh, my friend Ellen Pompeo was who from Grey's Anatomy, she was like, dude, you got to move to LA, you got to move to LA. And so 
eventually I like, I was like, all right, like I had this loft in Tribeca that I had had since it was like a raw space. And I was going to end up kind of, I, my, we were going to win this case for rent stabilization, all the tenants, but then the landlord started picking people off the case. So she came to me and was like, Hey, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll forgive all this money that you would owe me if you, you know, if you move out. And so there was that, my partner in the restaurant, um, offered to buy everybody out, which he did. And then Ellen and a bunch of my other friends were moving to LA. So there was this like mass exodus from, from New York to LA. So I found a house, Ellen and I moved into this house and shared this house. Um, and that was just kind of like, and I've been to a psychic in Boston, like a, like nine months earlier who told me I was going to move to LA. And I was like, ah! I like laughed. I was like, I have no intention of moving to LA. And sure enough, <laughs> Random. I moved to LA. It was bizarre. Um, never doubt the psychics, Kelly. No, I don't know. Maybe. So yeah, I've been to one myself. So you haven't been or you have been? No, I haven't been to a psychic. Never? I can't say that I've ever been to a psychic. We, I, we got mentalized at the the clothing show. Yeah. So similar, but similar. So you're you're in out you're in LA now and you're you're you have this concept mm-hmm. the lo-fi concept. Yeah. Tell us how it came to be because well, I, I looked at the pictures. I'm just going to preface this. I looked at I looked through cuz that was before my time mm-hmm. going to LA. I've been going to LA since I guess 2005. Mm-hmm. Was that? Well, lo-fi was still um, open in 2005. Okay, so maybe yeah, so just at the beginning of my time in LA. Right. And Look at the pictures. I know the space because I know the, the owners now, uh, Mike and Maggie of mm-hmm. Filth Mart. And it's a fucking rad space. Just like yeah. the lines you drew in that store of mm-hmm. like the the shelving being on, a, on an angle and with like – and then also the lines you drew on your countertop with the mm-hmm. DJs like – the, the turntables built into the counter, yeah. the mixing board built into the counter. Um, yeah, we had a Bozak mixer a, and two original – like original <laughs> – techniques 1200s like from like 80 whatever the first series my partner gary uh had those like in storage in long island we brought them out here and we had um we had a macintosh amp in there a tube amp and these jbl speakers on either end of the room that were the 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 type i forget what the style number is but the ones that they used to mix like every big record in the 70s like in the stu- there were there were studio monitors. They were inc- it was inc- wow. it sounded incredible in there. Um, yeah, I bet. So, tell us how this concept came to be. Super cool store, and um, how you got there. Well, I thought like you know I wanted to make a place where people could come and hang out, right? But I was like, well, I don't like I said I didn't want to do a restaurant or a bar, and so I thought, well, LA is about the day. Like if I made a store where people could like dip in. And if I, if I have like the right location, that's kind of off the beaten path, like off the street in an area where people aren't like, there isn't a lot of traffic and like, you got to kind of know about it. Right. Um, and it, it'll be like music centric, you know? And, and then I wanted to like, um, curate like the denim that I loved and then like have like have it be like a record store with t-shirts. Like we did miscellaneous graphics, but what started to like catch on for sure was like all the, the music tees, you know, and, and that became, so I wanted it to be like, you can find any band you're looking for. 
right? And everything will be like impeccable. Like the, the I'll present it like as if it's a gallery, you know, like as if it's, uh, you know, because there were other stores like, I mean, Denim Doctors was rad. And, and my friend and, and Sean, who later became my partner in my brand, um, it was just kind of, you know, dusty and dirty. And it was like, um, uh, you know, the, 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 their, their, their curation wasn't like what, what I had in mind. And, you know, it was like uh, a little bit like just dis, not disorganized, but just not just disheveled and not, and every place kind of was like that, you know? And like, I was like, what if it's like color blocked and like presented, like everything is cleaned and like the environment is, is as if it's like a, a, a high end retail store, you know, and, and yet it's, it's just the best of the best in, in denim t-shirts, leather and, 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 uh, belts and then some specialty. Yeah, I think people well. can relate to that because there is like a typical formula of a vintage store. Like <laughs> from what I know from my childhood of that really, it's like a one level up from a thrift store, yeah. very like mixed product. You kind of just take what you get, throw it in there. Yeah. Um, I mean, know, there were, there bit, were places something like, for everything. Yeah. I mean, there were places that curated like that for sure. Like resurrection decades. Um, what comes around goes around in New York was, you know, like, but I, there was nothing that I saw that was like a denim and t-shirt store that was like, you know, it was like wood hangers and like, you know, everything spaced and organized and, you know, the denim, you know, crisply folded and like you have light, medium and dark wash, you know, and like in every size and like, you know, I just I just conceptualized that this could be presented in this way that that was elevated, you know, and, yeah, and, and I would turn bring it to an elevated audience. Yeah. You know, in a different level. So yeah. how did you learn about the clothing then? So obviously, you know, you're going to see all the fashion doing what you did over the years in the club mm-hmm. scene, the restaurant scene and brushing shoulders with celebrities and all these people, you see what, what's cool, what people are wearing. But when it comes to denim, it's like deeper than that. You kind of got to like experience it, be around it, touch it, feel it, you know, all that shit for a while before you kind of like learn enough about it to really understand it. So like, how did that work for you? Well, there, was no, there wasn't, you couldn't look it up like you do now. You couldn't just look it all up, right? I, it wasn't available. No, definitely not. And it was really trial and error. And, and like, I have to say, like, I stumbled forward with a lot of good luck. I'll, I'll Just going back to like the space, right? So there was a space I lived um, in Hollywood and, and I would drive past the space on Fairfax every day. I don't know if I told you this story. I think I did. No, I don't so think I so. So I drive past this space and it was this place, it was this two little houses where it, and it had this ugly Trump Loy painted on the front of it, but it had a little uh, parking lot in front and this little courtyard in the middle between the two houses. And it was uh, this place, I think it was called Home Hunters or Roommate Finders. And it had been in that location for 50 years, right? So it had been there since the 50s, 40 some years. And every time I drove past this store, I said, that's the location. That's what it has to be like off the beaten path, set back from the street, its own little building. It can't be like in a strip of businesses. I just, in in my mind, I visualized that it had to be like that. Right. So I honestly, like I, I, uh, true story. This, I put this like business plan together, like very rough sketch, like in a concept that I was going to send around to some of my friends to invest. The night I did that, 
I, 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 I pray, I pray like to, you know, my concept of a higher power to the universe, whatever. I pray that night. I'm like, you know, if this is meant to be like, give me the, like, you know, let it flow or whatever, you know? So I swear to God, the next day I'm driving by that space and there's a for rent sign on the door and that business was out of it. So I, I go up, I, I pull in, right? I do a U-turn and I go back in and I call the number and the guy's like, I just put that sign up. Uh, the realtor was like, I just left there. You just missed me. This is the, this is the fastest I've ever got. A call. It was unbelievable. And, and I mean, the place was disgusting. It had, it was all divided up into cubicles and had that cottage cheese, like ceiling and wall and like nasty carpeted floor. It was disgusting. And well, I mean, we had to like completely gut it, but I did the deal with the landlord who was right next door on a handshake. He was like 85 years old. It just, everything was like, and that was the same with like, as I started to, um, step forward, I didn't know anything, you know, I just knew what I liked, you know? And so as I started to step forward, I had a lot of good fortune, you know, people educating me and, 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 and no one really cared about t-shirts at that time. You know, like I would go to the Rose Bowl and get 150 incredible t-shirts because no one cared. You know, I was, I was telling dealers like, I'll pay this, you know, and they were like, what, you know, like, cause t-shirts were not, you know, it was about denim and leather and t-shirts were kind of like an afterthought. There weren't, there was no, there was nobody out there buying t-shirts like I was, you know, for sure. Yeah, there was. I mean, it's good to good to touch on for the show because a lot of people watching this show are just dealing t-shirts, mm-hmm. right? And it was never like that back in the day. Like you no. say, t-shirts was an afterthought. Everyone would have some t-shirts in their store, but not a lot of people focused heavily on it like you had done at that time. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's crazy. I look, I think back because we've been selling to you for so long, mm. you know, and like you were – well, you still are a heavy buyer, but back then it was like, um, yeah, you would buy a, you would buy a lot, you would mm-hmm. buy a lot of t-shirts, and we would we would sell you a lot because you were paying like great value, and there was it wasn't um, like this fluctuating prices of t-shirts like are going up and down and crazy right now, and you never know what something's worth. But back then it was like this steady level keel of like mm-hmm. pricing that you could count on for like couple years at a time not to really move very very different yeah, i very remember different. those days of you you out there buying a lot of t-shirts man yeah and 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 you know again there was no standard like there was no market anything i was just going i think this is worth this you know like i think you know that and and so i would tell like i said i would go out there and i would tell guys like i'll pay this for this and you know they would they would hold stuff for me i was never coming up i realized like like I've always paid for, yeah, I've had come ups, you know, like I've walked into a, a thrift store and found a couple, a couple times I've, I've scored things, but 99.9% of the things that I've bought over time have been like, I'm, pay, I'm going to pay. And I want you to know that I'm going to pay because I need the supply. I don't need to like, I don't need to come, come in low, you know, like to, I'm not trying to get over, like I'll pay for it. If it's, if it's too much, obviously I can't, but um, I was never somebody. Who yeah. Was, so when you say come up, it's like a two dollar t shirt worth a hundred right, bucks. Right. Yeah. Like as opposed to like you're gonna go in and be like, I can sell this for a hundred. I'll give you thirty, forty, whatever you whatever you think is a fair market. Right. right. 
which is a, a smart way to do it because that secures your supply typically and allows you to like be able to re- retain that source, right? Right. So if you're if you're saying like you you didn't have um, there was no market value making shit up as you go, mm. kind of like putting prices on things like. It's an interesting topic. So like how were you pricing for your store and like how do you learn that and like what dictated higher prices at the time than other things? And um, I, I just thought like it was like people do now, right? Like, you know, what was desirable, right? Like in 2002, you know, it was Led Zeppelin. You know, it was – if you think about what was vintage then, like, you know – a Led Zeppelin 77 shirt was 25 years old right then. Now 25 years old is a shirt from 1997, which is crazy to think like, you know, because that Zeppelin shirt seemed a million years old in 2002, but it wasn't that old really ultimately. Um, But it was based on like desirability and like age, I guess, you know, like if it was from the early seventies and it was something really desirable, David Bowie or whatever, then it was, you know, I was like, okay. I mean, I remember the first time I got a thousand dollars for a t-shirt was like, that was crazy to me. You know, like I, and, and, and was it? Do you it, David Bowie, uh, I had, so I found this guy on eBay. Um, I was looking for, I, I'm a big Iggy pop fan, right? I have him tattooed on my right arm. Um, and I was looking for Iggy stuff and I found this guy that had a couple like press kit type things and an, and an, and he had, I remember he had an RCA records, which Iggy was on ashtray. And I was like, do you have any other stuff? And he was like, yeah, I have these David Bowie t-shirts. And I was like, well, I'd be interested in seeing those. And, uh, he, he had, uh, four, uh, David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust promo t-shirts which were before it was before there was he had he had recorded the record but there was no album artwork or anything he hadn't like fleshed out the character of Ziggy Stardust so it was like a cartoon uh, of it and and um and on the front it said Ziggy David Bowie is Ziggy Stardust and then on the back it said Ziggy Stardust is David Bowie and one of those is I sold to what comes around goes around it's in that rock and roll t-shirt book you can see um but that, yeah, that was, and I, 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 I had four of them and, um, one of them went in that book. I sold one to Kelly Osborne, one to Jack Nicholson's daughter, uh, Julianne. And, and then I kept one for years and then eventually I had to pay my mortgage. So I sold it. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, to a Japanese guy. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, back then that kind of money was, is, was unheard of for I mean, any i mean denim i guess was getting those prices oh, huge, if you yeah, had the right stuff denim was crushing maybe like even leathers you'd get good you'd get a grand or 15 mm-hmm. or maybe two grand for like crazy leathers East West, i was selling but for I, big money but yeah yeah that was a wicked time i love that east west time and, yeah. but t-shirts i remember the, for the longest time like we the most expensive shirt we had ever sold was like 400 mm-hmm. you know for years and years and years that was the most expensive shirt we ever sold it, then it was like i don't even remember where we ended up starting thousand dollar shirts but that was probably like way later when like rap shirts became popular but, yeah i mean there was it was, yeah, there, was a big, there was a big gap right because so like the stuff that I was pricing at 300, I was like, are they going to pay? You know, because people would come in and go, $60 for a t shirt. 
or a hundred dollars for a t-shirt. I mean, you look at like some of the, the press that lo-fi got, like that was the thing they talked about, like how much these t-shirts were going for, you know? And I was getting like roadies coming to me with their collections because they're like, I read that you're getting a hundred dollars for a t-shirt. Like it's hard to imagine, but they're a hundred dollars in the beginning. Like people were like a hundred dollars. And so like, as it sort of progressed in those first couple of years, you know, I was pushing things to like 300, 350, you know, and then there was a disparity. Like I would put things in the like display case and go, I don't really want to sell this, but if somebody's going to pay $500, like I'll sell it, you know? And there was, um, I remember Winona Ryder bought, I had a dog day afternoon promo shirt and I was like, I don't want to sell this. You know, it's, it's Al Pacino. It was one of my favorite films and and she was insistent. And so I was like, okay, $500 sold. And I was like, what? No way. You know, and then, <laughs> you know, that 70s show was a big customer of mine. And I had this, the one, one of the few come-ups I ever had, I had a Every Which Way But Loose promo t-shirt, which had this fucking rad cartoon artwork of Clint Eastwood and like all the different characters and the orangutan like throwing a punch in 3D. So it was like shooting forward. And that 70s show was like, how, how much is that? I was like, well, it's not really for sale, but it's just on display. And they're like, well, we want it. And they bought so much stuff from me. They were like my, they kept me alive for like the first year or two. And so I was like, okay, 750. And they bought it. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. You know? And, and then there were the Bowie shirts. I, I, I used to watch that show. I didn't really know you supplied them. Yeah, they, I'm going to read off the list here. So it's, it says you had regulars, Ben Harper, Johnny Knoxville, uh, Aaron Paul, Winona Ryder. Um, like, so you're saying the 70s show, like, helped you stay in business for the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. I guess that's when you're, like, kind of relatively unknown to, like, the Hollywood elite. But then at some point, they all start shopping with you, right? Yeah. They all start flowing in the door. I'm going to be name dropping, by the way. <laughs> this list is, is, he- is heavy. Okay. So... <laughs> We got no shame in name dropping on the show here. So like, how does that all unfold? And like, I know this was a, this was like an LA staple lo-fi. I know it's like one of your big achievements. So like, how does that unfold where all of a sudden all these celebrities are coming and well, you're selling to a whole I new get, customer? I guess, you know, like my whole thing was like, I, you know, if you build it, they will come, you know? And so I was just like, I'm just going to do this. And I did have some friends that were kind of dialed in, you know, and I was like, I was DJing, you know, in the Hollywood scene. And, you know, when I first got here, I started playing at this club called Deluxe and like all those people, not all those people, but a lot of people came through there like every week. It was like, you know, Vince Vaughn and and Stephen Dorff, who I'd known for years and, and um, like, just like that whole, like, I can't, blanking on who else came, but like everybody came through there, like Marilyn Manson. And, you know, it was a small little club and it was all like insiders. It was a Tuesday night party. And my friend Hartwell was the, was the promoter. And, um, he was very, very dialed in. And so like out of that, I started like getting more DJ gigs and, and, and then, you know, you meet people and you're like, Hey, I've got this store and whatever. And then they tell, Oh, my friend's really into denim. And, you know, and then it started getting press. Right. And, there was a piece in uh, we got best T-shirts in L.A. Weekly or L.A. Magazine in, in 2003. And that was like a huge influx of people. 
Um, and then there was a piece in Vanity Fair either that year or the next year. And then just, you know, people just started showing up and because they felt safe there, like you couldn't see in, like the windows were mirrored and there was that drive, the, the parking lot you could drive into. And, you know, there was a sofa and a fireplace. So people would come and hang out. It just became a thing where like, you know, people were coming and hanging out and, you know, they felt really welcome. Yeah, so opposed to like shopping at like a Melrose store where you could be seen by all types of people, you can kind of be more low key shopping at Lo-Fi. Yeah. And just so people know, the location is just north of Melrose on Fairfax, right? Mm-hmm. And at that yeah. time, Fairfax was not, you know, there wasn't anything on that. That stretch of Fairfax below Melrose was, was you know, there was a thrift store and like canters and this pizza place and like all like it was mainly it would that had been like a, a a jewish restaurant so there were like a bunch of kosher stores there and like you know a jewish neighborhood um yeah but there and was so, no, yeah. no so streetwear like the, the stores street- no sneaker stores and, totally. where and I even, was, even, up, even to this day you're kind of detached from that zone correct anyway and it's kind of it is totally its own little zone because there isn't even really businesses on that strip that lo-fi was on no no there wasn't and and filth mart like like you said filth mart is there now and and those were my my friends mike and maggie who took the store over in um 2007 but they um they you know there still yeah there still isn't much on that in that zone but there was nothing in that zone um back then for sure yeah uh, random question, but do you ever get starstruck? Like the amount of people you know, the amount of celebrities you've hung out with in your life, and you're actually close friends with. Like, is there anybody that like would make you starstruck at this point? Um, yeah, I got a little. I mean, the times that I, the well, the one time that I met Iggy, I got like a little freaked out. Um, I'm trying to think. I just thought of somebody the other day that I was like, "Oh shit!" When I met when I met them. Um, I can't think of anybody nowadays. Yeah, well, that's fair. Nowadays, probably De Niro. Like I'd get a little freaked out. He's such a such a hero. Um, but I met I met him back in the day, like, actually. So that that didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah wasn't yeah. he, he yeah, in he one of the, the news and, clippings and, of like? Um, <laughs> so there, there, I'm trying to think. I don't. I don't know. I don't know who. I mean, there's certainly people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it's just interesting to me because more, like that whole thing of being starstruck with people because you watch them on TV, yeah. they're famous. But I, I get starstruck, you know. I get starstruck when I meet people like that. Like we had mm. um, Drew Barrymore in the booth, although I did ask her for the picture and she said no. But like you know, I just get starstruck around people, and it's such a weird phenomenon. Like, why? What's the what's she, the she used to come into Lo-Fi and she would leave me notes. She would say to shirts she wanted. Like if I wasn't there and I used to have the notes and one of them was like, a, she liked the replacements. She wanted a replacement shirt. Um, yeah. That's epic. You, say yeah, you just used, have a pin board to, in the back room yeah, of like people's like that, yeah. requests. There was a, um, I'm trying to think like, who was it recently that I was like, oh my God, I was, I was starstruck. I was DJing one time and, and, uh, and, at this movie premiere and I was, I just started playing and the movie was still going. And so there was nobody in the party area. It was like this big giant 
behind like the one of the big theaters on Hollywood Boulevard and they built out this giant event space. And I I was like listening to tracks in my headphones and I and I felt the presence of somebody standing in front of the booth and I looked up and and I I was startled because Angelina Jolie was standing there and I was like <gasps> and she was so beautiful and I was like oh like that kind of was like a starstruck moment. Cause she was so stunning and she just kind of looked at me and then walked away. I was like, Hey, what's up? And she was like, supped me and walked away. Bing. We interrupt this very amazing podcast episode to bring you a quick word from our sponsor, Bidstitch. Go check it out. Bidstitch.com. You can sell your garments with no commission fees. You can learn all about what's going on in the vintage community via our news. Okay. Thank you. And back to the episode. Eventually, you sold Lo-Fi mm. and you moved on from that space. How mm. did you know, you know, we've, we've already said it, but Mike and Maggie, Filth Mart, they took it over. Yeah. They also came out from New York. They did, right? yeah. Yeah, it was crazy because... So were you friends with them from back in the day? I was. I knew Mike a little bit um, from New York. He, um, so, and Filth Mart in New York was you know, a legendary store in the East village was rad. And I, I, you know, it was inspiring to me. I would go in there, you know, buy t-shirts and stuff in the, in the, in the nineties, late nineties. Um, and actually I sold them a bunch of stuff when I moved to LA. Like I had all this like vintage that I didn't wear and I took it in there and sold it to them. But then we became friends over the years. I would go visit and I got, I got to know them better uh, I would go to New York and I was, I was actually trying to open a store in New York at one point in Soho. And so I was spending time there and, and then, um, I mean, they're just lovely people. So we became friends and, and then when they moved here, they were working for me. So I had a, you know, I had started manufacturing and, and Maggie was working in the store a little bit and then also doing sales for the, the brand and consulting on that. And then Mike was doing, um, he was designing with me and he was working on like, denim fit and stuff. Cause he was a genius at that. And, um, he's a genius at graphics as well, but I don't think we really did any graphics together. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how that happened. And then Jim Fox, who's a OG in the vintage business and, and his wife and them initially partnered and bought the lease for me. Um, but I was still manufacturing under that name. So I, um, I didn't, you know, I kept, I, I kept the name, um, but yeah, that's Did how. they originally kind of want to keep the name going? I don't think so. I think they, because yeah, I don't think they, they did. They already had the Filth Mart brand going. Yeah, they yeah. did. But but a, they, it was called a, a it was called Tabloid when they first took it over with with Jim and Marianne. But then um, they changed it to Filth Mart when when they I guess bought Jim and Marianne out like within the first year or something. But and you know that name is so rad. It was che- name checked in a Jay Z song. You know. In I just want to love you. They they he drops the name Filthmart Filthmart Jeans. Take that off. Yeah, that's that's the ultimate cosign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're saying you were you're manufacturing lo-fi brand. We should talk about this. Mm-hmm. You know you you also had later uh, the Kelly Cole line. Mm-hmm. But what kind of stuff was were you manufacturing for lo-fi? Like <sighs> oh. eventually you started to make denim T-shirts. What were you making? Well, I started with t-shirts and sweatshirts and then, um, I had some investors come in and, you know, I I made a very, very foolish, uh, and expensive (laughs) mistake. Uh, I 
did this full brand of like, I mean, it was absurd. I did leather jackets and, you know, studded belts and tennis skirts and polo shirts. And, you know, I took this whole giant line to market and the only things that sold were uh, the, the denim a little bit and the, um, and the belts and the belts did really well for, for a long time. Um, but the rest of that development was just into vapor. You know, when you spend a lot of money like developing and fits and samples and photography and all that stuff and models and you know, the cost just gets, starts to add up so fast. It's, well, especially in those days when, you know, things photographing things and models and all that and, and, and the marketing and everything was way more expensive than it is today on the level that I was on. Like there was, it was harder to do it in like a kind of a guerrilla way that you can do now with social media and everything. But, um, yeah, I, that, the initial collection was like some crazy number of SKUs and I did this massive catalog and it was absurd. Did you go to market or sorry, did you like produce everything or did you do the typical sampling and then only produce what was selling? Um, I no, it, yeah, I did sampling and we went to market. And then what, you went to a you, you went to a trade show to try to move this try to move the line. Right, went to Coterie in New York and went to I think project in Vegas or there was a show in Vegas. And yeah. 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 And then, and then I produced, then I, then I produced the denim and the, the belts because that's, that's what was really selling it. And I did a crazy thing too. Like in those days I was buying, I would buy like giant size, like 38 and 40 waist, five seventeen, six four six, six eight fours. I never really messed with 501s because I didn't understand them that much. I was, I was so focused on like the boot cut stuff. But I would cut we, – we created a, a pattern and we would cut and re-sew into jeans from those giant pairs of jeans like what Redone has started doing you know, several years ago. Um, and I did you – know, it, it, was, it was really expensive and really difficult because I didn't have – I had one sewer who was doing all that work. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, at least you're being able to use the old denim. So what does it yeah. cost to re-sew a pair of jeans like that back then? Back then? Oh my remember? God. It was, it was, I don't remember what I was paying, but it was, it was pretty hefty. Um, that's wild. So did that, was that like the beginning of the end for your, your lo-fi experience, that line, because you took the investor on? Um, yeah, in a way it just kind of put me, you know, under the gun, like behind the eight ball. And then it took, kind of took the joy out of it. Um, so within like a year and a half, I, I just was, I was overwhelmed. You know, there was like, uh, I tried to like change it up and make it more interesting for myself. And, and, um, you know, we did another, uh, you know, even, even that second run at doing a, a collection when I, when I had Mike and Maggie involved and stuff, we would go to market and it just like the engine wasn't turning over, you know? And so it was like, it would do okay, but, but not nearly enough to, to, um, and I had, you know, again, it was just, it was a weird thing because I had all this great press and I had like, you know, it just, but the engine just wasn't turning over. So, yeah. So the next chapter, you, 
you sold Lo-Fi. They took it over. Mm-hmm. Now, if you guys can still go there, which is rad that it still has the vintage legacy. You know, your legacy still is there somewhat because it still is a vintage store to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, with Mike and Maggie of Filthmark, great people. Um, go check out the space. Um, and then you eventually opened Kelly Cole on La Brea, right across from American Rag, mm-hmm. which I think you had the store when I when we met, right? No, I met you before did that. You opened it after. I, I met you. you. Did yeah, I met you before that because yeah, I met you guys. You know, still during the lo-fi days, um, I was buying from you um, at the bowl. Um, I so it seems crazy to me that if you had lo-fi, we would have never we would have come by. But geez, I don't know, maybe not. Yeah, I I think I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I mean, it was. But then I was I continued. You know, after I closed lo-fi. I was still selling belts, right? I had like a, a, a pretty robust business buying and selling vintage belts and manufacturing belts. Um, and then I was still doing t-shirts a little bit. And then I got into wholesaling t-shirts again, like 2009. I started like okay. dabbling again. And then 2010, um, I opened, I was trying, I wanted to get a space in that area on La Brea, but I, in, in the meantime, I opened temporarily on Third Street in my, again, Sean, for, uh, who had Denim Doctors, had split with Zip, and he opened a, a location called Denim Revival, and Zip took the Denim Doctors name and opened on Beverly. And then Sean was busy because he was designing for, uh, for J brand. And then, then he was at current Elliot and he was designing denim. He launched the men's line at J brand and then, then went and did was designing men's for current Elliot. And he was just kind of not focused on the store. So he was like, Hey, do you want to take over the, the retail part? And I took over the front of that store while I was waiting to get, um, the location on La Brea, which I eventually got, um, in 2012. So I wanted to speak about this. So I know you too from, from your leather buying. We, we mm-hmm. used to bring you belts mm-hmm. to the bowl. It, you have a very – you know, part of the Kelly Cole brand mystique, you are an insanely focused curator. Mm-hmm. I know you to be um, – you know, it's, I don't know how else to put it. You're an insanely focused curator. You're very particular in what you buy, particular in what you curate for your business. Mm-hmm. And that goes with the belts. That goes with the T-shirts. And I'm sure everything else you do. You know, explain to us the, the belts because I, I did look through some of the, the clips and we'll, we'll, put a, we'll put a clip on here. Mm-hmm. Like the look you had, I guess, like in those early days was like the denim, the, the really uh, embellished belt, big buckle. And a cool rock tee from the 70s. That was like the vibe, right? Yeah. So give us a rundown on like the belts. Like what – what, and you're still buying belts to this yeah. day. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, so like what kind of belts do you look for? Like what makes a really good Western belt? It's just it's just like – there's like the design, the patina, the the texture of the leather. Like it has to be like – for lack of a better term, like juicy, um, you know, the thickness, <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. I just look at it and it either fits. And this is like, you know, a lot of people are always talking about that, like that curation or how picky I am or whatever, but it's all I've ever known how to do. Right. Like I never sold. I didn't use, I didn't use the word picky. No, I know, but people, <laughs> people do. 
and they say I'm too too picky or whatever. And I'm like, well, that's all I've ever known how to do. You know, like all you know, vendors over the years are like, you should you're you're narrowing yourself. In, you know, you're painting yourself into a corner. Your your focus is too narrow. You should sell regular. You should sell mid. And and look, there's that old adage, right? Like sell to the rich, eat with the poor. Sell to the poor, eat with the rich or sell to the regular guy, eat to the with the rich. But I've just never known how to do it. And that's not out of any kind of like elitism or like any sort of ego or whatever. I just only know how to look at that stuff. I've never had to, known how to look at regular and know how to make money from it. You know, like Levi's that didn't look sexy to me or like Carhartt or like t-shirts that weren't like perfect to me, you know, like, and or belts that, you know, weren't a hundred percent, you know, like a little bit bent and like a little bit, you know, and I learned the business, um, from a guy who was a, um, uh, a curator for Ralph Lauren, you know, and even though what I was doing or for double RL, and even though what I was doing was, was a different aesthetic, he taught me how to look at things in that way, you know? And he always taught me like, you know, to, to pay up for stuff, you know, like, and, and I, I just sort of like through all my, he's, he, and I still have a, you know, he's still a, a, a big, uh, uh, support to me and coach to me when I, when I'm in doubt or, you know, worried or whatever, you know, like he's, he's just, he, he's, just, he's yeah. always, he, he's been a big, um, support to me. Um, that's awesome. And I, 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 you know, I think, how you hit it right is is you can't explain how you curate you can't right. it's it's in your head it's in your eye for the clothing mm. and i see that in you when you're doing it because i'm with you we're out buying like you just spent a a, a week in toronto hanging mm. out with us and and buying and we and every time you come to see us and i think that's um it's rad and you do come out in the end the product that you curate the product that you create which is your curation speaks for itself Mm. people want it people know it's going to be on point people know that the quality is going to be there the look is right the fade is right Mm. it all comes together and i think you know the same can be said for a lot of different a lot of different genres and different people doing what you do Mm. we don't obviously myself and jesse don't curate like that and the word curate (laughs) gets thrown around so much Mm. in this business when it's like so bullshit because you're not really curating, you're just picking stuff, you know. And mm. I guess you know by definition, a curate curation is just a collection of anything. But um, yours is legit as far as curators go. Kudos to you for doing that, sticking with your guns because it's it's obviously worked for you, and people know what they're going to get and they appreciate it. Well, so it's still like an obsession, right? Like if I go out, like if I go to the Rose Bowl or I go to um, a show, I can't wait to get back and look at what I've pulled together, how it all looks together, you know, and I look at it, I look at it. I mean, I still love it. Like I still love doing it and, and looking at what I've assembled, you know, like it's so exciting to me. And, you know, having the vision, like looking at something and going, Oh, I can repair that. I can, I can get that stain out. I can make that work. You know, like the whole, like, when I'm in it, I'm in the zone, you know, like people always are like, Oh, I want to come and visit you at the Rose Bowl. Are you going to be there? And I'm like, don't no. I'm, I'm, when I'm there, I'm like, I'm on a mission, you know, and I'm, I'm going at it hard. Um, 
And, you know, that, that whole thing of like, I, you know, it, it's a funny thing. Like, you know, when the nineties thing started happening, right? Like I was like, Ugh, you know, at first, like, and then I started to see the beauty in the rap tees and like things that I would had, you know, thrown aside for $5, you know, were now worth all this money. And I, and, and it wasn't the money. Like there are things that are going for big money now that I still think are preposterous and I would never buy it, you know, but, but I started looking at when I started to adjust my vision to what was beautiful about those things. I started to, it started to open up, you know, and I started to buy those things. And, and, and now I really love that stuff too, you know, but, but again, I'm super meticulous about it, about what the hand is, about what the, like, I don't buy it just because it has, uh, just because it's a, a collectible thing or in the, in the, in the, in the hype beast world or the, you know, uh, you know, um, what is, what does Jesse call it in the, uh, uh, auto tune alley? Like just because it has a value, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make, yeah. it doesn't make sense to me necessarily unless the total package is to me worthy of like saying, okay, I endorse this. This is something that you should buy for this amount of money. Yeah, I feel that. And, you know, a lot of people are picking for subject matter alone. Mm-hmm. A lot of pe- some people are picking for look alone, right? Some people are picking for subject matter and look and mm-hmm. colors. And there's like so many variances that people could be attracted to within it. And I think people hone their vision over time after seeing a lot of it and seeing what's out there, seeing what's rare, seeing what's not. Um, but, you know, obviously your life in this world, in the club scene in the DJ world, acting, being around celebrities, you, you've you've gr- you've honed this curation somehow that is meticulous and is awesome. And I, I, you know, I love what you said too. Like it keeps you coming back. That like that love for it and the love for the act of doing it. You say you're in the zone, mm. you know. And I think that zone you're referring to is like something we call the flow state that like artists get or musicians get right when you're like so in tune with what your mission is and like <clears throat> i've felt it with sports i felt it with parts of business i felt it with a lot of different things in my life but you get so in the zone so is that like is that part of it keep you in this business like does that what keeps you interested and keep doing it yeah i mean i think there well there's a part of like being like, if you're attracted to that, right? Like there's like a, there's like a hunter instinct that you have, right? Like I've always been that way. Like when I was a kid, I would go through like, you know, my parents played softball at this place that had a trash dump behind it, you know? And I would just like go back there and like go through, you know, like go through stuff. Like I've always had that sort of instinct too. But then there's also like, I'm interested in the idea that like, who's attracted to this business, right? Like, like it's kind of like got an outlaw aspect to it, right? Like it's people that like have an issue maybe working for other people, you know, like I'm unemployable. I've, I've, I've been working for myself since with the exception of course of like when I DJ or I'm an actor, I'm, I'm employed by an individual that I in, in some manner have to answer to. Right. And I have to, but this is like, there's an outlaw aspect to this. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a quest for, for, for freedom in a way that like is why we 
kind of get into this, right? Like, and it's, it's interesting, this whole new wave of like guys that have gotten, I'm, I'm, I've been very curious about like, where did everybody came, come from that got into this business in 2020, you know, 2020, like what were they doing before? Were they into sneaker culture or whatever? Because in the past, people that got into vintage are, it's, there's like a gypsy thing to it in a way, you know, like people that are like dealers or vendors. Um, but there's like a commonality. There's like, there's a, there, there's like a, like for me, like that quest to like, this is freedom. You know, like I, I do this because I enjoy the product, but also it's like, I don't have to answer to anyone in a way, you know, like it's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I love the, I love the freedom aspect of it. And I think too, you know, the, 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 that thrill of the hunt is, is, dopamine firing it's Definitely. a dopamine firing endeavor right yeah. and especially like yourself would understand this because you're like an ex you know user of substances for mm-hmm. lack of a better term and you know i i've been in and out of sobriety uh myself and i understand that like that that like dopamine rush is fucking great when mm-hmm. you're out there hunting it's part of the thrill of this oh, definitely. right you know you see that all um, the heads at, at- in the dark at 4am, you're like, this is not just finding stuff. You know, this is about like that feeling that you get, you know, there's a, there's an interesting thing that I've recognized recently that happens for me when I'm buying a piece that's a little more expensive, right? Like I'll, I'll be like doing the calculus, like I'm standing there holding it and I'm like, am I going to, you know, and I, and that moment when I'm like, yes, I can pull the trigger. There's like a, a rush forward on it. Like, yeah, I feel like, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like, there's a moment where you feel like, yes, I'm pulling the trigger. Like this is a big leap, you know? Um, maybe I haven't paid totally. this much for something before. And I'm like, all right, here we go. Like I'm leaping off this ledge right now, you know? And I kind of know I'm going to make it work. Like, I've done the the calculus in my head and I'm like, let's do it. You know, there's a feeling there, you know, that's, that's really exciting. Scary sometimes too, but you know. Well, that's, that's it also like pushing past the fear is another great feeling, you know, because that's, that's, we all thrive to do that yeah. as part of human nature. I don't understand. Um, I still don't understand the blind live though, man. I don't understand the blind, the blind bid lives. Like, I don't understand that. Why like, anybody? Why anyone would yeah, bid like, on what it? The or hell? What? Like, yeah. And then I watch the guys, and what they put forward is like they're obviously putting forward the stuff they want to get rid of. You know, it's like I don't know. It's not for me. So you've never have, have you ever you've never been on it? No, I've been on it. I don't. I just I haven't bought anything. No, but you haven't you haven't been no, you haven't bought anything. No. I don't think I would do it. I feel like the blind live is is a is like a last last ditch attempt for those guys to make money. Mm. They're probably going off last night because today's rent day or to, yeah. Yeah, there were like day. four. I looked up, last night. There were like four going on. I was like, what? The, what's going on? What? It's yeah. it's Thursday night. But I I heard people score. You got to prey on them when uh, when the rents do. You know, and I guess see if they'll slip on some shit. But then, are you beholden to one of the? one of the packages or whatever if like once i don't think you are it, but you, you can you can deny them and say show me something else until until somebody comes up with something that you're like okay i'm down with that okay i've only done it once 
maybe twice because they're like friends and I'm like, let me just see what happens. But I typically don't bid. But both times I did it, I don't know. It's hard to know. And that's also another thing. Like when you're when you're you know, for you being the, the tight curator you are, you don't get to touch it. You don't get to see see it up close. And there's details that you might miss from the screen, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's you know, it's hit and miss even by, you know, eating on any of the online platforms. It's, you know, you could get it and it's it's crispier than it looks or you could get it and it's 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 better than it looks. But, you know, it's always a gamble in that way. Um. Yeah, I prefer, I much prefer to touch it to buy it. You know, most of yeah. So, are you buying? You are buying quite a bit online right now. I don't. No, I don't really buy much at all online. No. Um, yeah. So let's let's uh, let's talk about the Kelly Cole store. Hmm. Um, you know, this was your second retail endeavor. Okay. Like we kind of said before on La Brea, mm-hmm. um, I went in there a bunch of times. I bought stuff from you there. Mm-hmm. You had a great mix of, you know, a lot of T-shirts, definitely like I would say mostly T-shirts, but you had great denim, great biker jackets. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry. But yeah. Great biker jackets. Um, and you also were doing like overdyed sweats. And then eventually you you brought back manufacturing and you were doing Kelly Cole brand, correct? Right. Yeah. Um, so what made you jump back into retail? What was it like? Um, I just like, I don't know. I just, I, I wanted to do it again. I wanted to do it a different way and I wanted to do it. I wanted another chance, uh, at manufacturing and I wanted, and I was just really, like I said, I start. I had started wholesaling in 2009 and I just got, was ramping it up and I was like, well, I'm getting enough, uh, inventory to do a store and I really wanted to manufacture again. So I actually started manufacturing from the beginning. Basically I started doing denim okay. and I started doing graphic tees and I was, I was also wholesaling the graphic tees and they were doing really well. Um, and then I started doing blanks, uh, the cut and sew blanks that I did. And those, my, my second, um, my second run at, at manufacturing was, was much better, much more successful. I took, I took a lot of information from my failures the first time around but it it was successful at the retail level but at the wholesale level it was very challenging um because can you give us some of those like i I think people will be interested in that like you're saying you learned from your failures in your first Mm -hmm. round of manufacturing and took them into your second round like for those who've never manufactured like what are what were some of those challenges and what were some of the things you learned and like give us some tips about getting into this world of manufacturing? Well, for, for sure, start small. You know, uh, if you look at like one of the things that I learned, what, you know, Ralph Lauren started selling neckties, right? And then it was neckties and polo shirts. And like you build on, on one or two items. You don't try to come out of the gate with like 50 things, you know, and then you focus on what's working, right? For me, it was like, it was always a challenge because I was like, what really worked for me was the blanks. Like my blanks sold, you know, uh, super, super well, but they're not brand new, right? So it's hard to like, it's hard to expand that into, into wholesale. If you don't have a brand name that it's kind of like a psychology thing, right? Like the people that wore them new and the same for my denim was like people, the people that 
wore it, loved it, and swore by it, and exclusively wore that. But to get that engine to turn over on a bigger scale was was very difficult. Um, um, it's interesting. Yeah, I uh, definitely start small. You know, start small. If you look like Polo, Polo sold the golf shirt. Never stopped selling that golf <laughs> shirt. You know that that three button Polo shirt. And then there's brands that are putting out like five, six collections a year of multiple items, all new every time. But it's 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 tricky now with like the width of how fast fashion moves. Yeah. I guess there's always staples that hold true over time, but and the know, drops. I'm, I'm in that business now of like whole, of with with the reworks. Like we're putting yeah. out so much new styles all the time, and then we we will hit items where we're like, okay, this item had like a two year run. Mm-hmm. But like fuck, it's hard to get anything to go beyond that time yeah. frame, you know? Yeah, and the whole thing with like the way things drop now, like the limited edition drops and stuff, like I couldn't like get my thinking into and my customer wasn't really that customer, I guess. Um but I you know, you 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 mentioned, you know, when talking about your businesses, I have a friend who had this very successful uh chocolate company that he started out of his he was a ski bum in Boulder and he started making chocolate weed chocolate bars because his landlord was complaining that they were smoking so much weed at these parties he was having that, <laughs> that he, he act, the landlord actually came and said, Hey, could you not like the place stinks like weed? So he was like, Oh, I got to do something different. I'm going to make, so he just started making these chocolate bars and everyone was like, these are so great. He was infusing them with like raspberries or whatever. And, and then he started selling to whole foods. The whole thing went crazy and he sold this thing for millions of dollars. But he said a thing about business, which I'd never heard anybody say before, which was, and I think you've experienced this. He goes, in the beginning, there was a push, right? I was pushing, I was pushing, I was pushing, but then there was a pull and I felt the pull and I had to be prepared for that pull. You know, and I, I will say that I never really, with all the press and all the crazy clientele I had over the years, like, I never really felt that pull on the wholesale level or like, like it just didn't, the engine never turned over you with Frankie, you felt that pull, like you felt a pull, you know? Um, I know from having dialogue with you about it and, and you've been prepared, you have an infrastructure that's, that's supportive of that and you've been able to grow it and, and, and it's very impressive. I'm very proud of you. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> it's very nice of you to say. I definitely, yeah, I know what you mean. There's been times and I've, I've voiced them to you, of course, that, yeah, that, that, that it was very obvious that pull was there, you know? And mm. I feel like, like you say, we're prepared, but I feel like there's, we could have been more prepared for certain periods too. And I feel like a lot those pulls for us have come sometimes right when we're like at our wits end and about to call it a fucking day. Mm. You know what I mean? Because we've been pushing, pushing, pushing. And you're like, I've almost had enough. I can't mm. push anymore. And then I feel like that's when that pull often happens. Kind of when you least expect it. And like when you're about to call it a day, mm. it's wild. It's wild. At least that's been my experience with Frankie for sure. But my, my thing too, like I, with manufacturing, I don't really, it's funny cause I'm, I'm starting to manufacture again. I'm starting to do my blanks again just to like tiptoe forward into, and I'm just doing that. Right. Uh, cause I've, I've been getting so many requests and wholesale, some wholesale requests and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to do a run. But in, in general, 
I find manufacturing to be very complicated and confusing. The 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 arithmetic around like fit and stuff, I I'm not great at it. It's not my natural thing. What's always fallen back to for me is vintage. Like I when I encounter people, they're like, "Oh, you're the vintage T-shirt guy," or da da da. And and there's a part of me that's wanted to like transcend that and go, "No, no, that, that's not all I am," you know. And so the manufacturing has been like at times almost like. Uh, me trying to validate myself or like an ego thing like well i've got this name that people know i have to manufacture and that's the way to grow it you know but in reality that may not be my fate you know i may not have that acumen around manufacturing and you know my friend said something to me uh, a couple years ago we were talking about business and and she said used this analogy that 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 i thought was brilliant. She was like, you know, I look at some people and they are industrial farmers. They're able to, to operate this massive farm with like all of these crops and all these animals and, and, and they, and their mind is able to, to manage that thing. You know, me, I'm a small farmer. She said, she said, I can only look after so many pigs and so many cows and so many crops. And, and I've got to be okay with that because I just can't manage that big, like, that's not who I am, you know? And for me, it's been about coming to terms with like, okay, like this is the part of it that I love. I love vintage t-shirts, you know, and that's okay. Like I love it and I love doing that. And, and it, and it doesn't define me in some negative way that like, I'm just buying and selling vintage. Like I, it's cool, you know? And I do all these other things like, you know, um, I have other creative pursuits and stuff, but like, this is something that I enjoy that I'm able to make a living doing and that's okay. You know, I don't have to be a big farmer. I don't have to be, you know, I used to compare myself because I had this big clientele and, you know, you know, people knew who I was or whatever. And I was like, well, I have to be, I have to grow and I have to be like this other brand. And like, otherwise it's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. But in reality, it's like, if you're able to like make a living doing something that you love, you know, it doesn't have to be this big thing, you know, like I think that's something you just come to terms with over time with age, you know, that it's like, it's okay. Yeah. I love that dude. And I, I think a lot of times what we're doing in those like moments thinking that it has to be something else is comparing ourselves, like you said, Mm -hmm. to other people. And then like, uh, you know, it's outside influence that gives us that false sense of we have to be something that we might not want to be or, or that isn't aligned or whatever. Right. Like it's, it's, it's my vision of what I think they're thinking maybe I should Mm. be doing or whatever that is that screws it up when it's just like, you should just do what's going to make you happy. Yeah. Compare and despair. Right. That's what they say. Compare and despair. It's like, it's, that's the, there's no, almost nothing, like, I mean, I guess some people look at, you know, you've heard people say that, like, I saw that guy doing that and it motivated me and inspired me and made me work harder or whatever. But I think most of what comes out of comparing is not positive. You know, it's, it's, it creates negative self image. It creates fear and anxiety. And, you know, it's, I don't think it's uh, a positive motivator in most cases. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I love that, Kelly. So I wanted to uh, shift the talk here into another area of um, 
styling and kind of personal shopping. We know you've been in this business a long time. You've had the two stores. You know, you had successes and you had setbacks. Through this whole life you've lived, you've been around an amazing array of celebrities, musicians, actors, uh, actresses, um, also like brands. Like you've worked with probably lots of big uh corporate brands and you know the world of styling and the world of selling to celebrities is so idealized and so like put on a pedestal in the vintage game i got a shirt on the kardashian or i got a shirt on this movie star or whatever it is and it's like we all are sort of it's great marketing. You can't deny that. It, it, it's good marketing. I want to know like your experience with it, how your time in that world, you know, you're still in that world, but mm-hmm. you know, what's it like? Is it cracked up like, like it's sort of put out there in the world and, you know, give us your, your take on it. Hmm. Well, that's, there's, there's a lot of different questions there, right? So, there's okay. styling, which is, you know, styling a client, which I've done a little bit of, um, which is like actually okay. dressing someone, choosing selections of outfits for like photo shoots or touring or like whatever. And that's its own animal. It's very hard, schleppy work, you know, a lot of running around, you know, you're dealing with personalities that are difficult sometimes, um, not all the time, um, so that, that's one thing, right? And then, yeah, I, I think that's great. I think, I think what you nailed on the head, these things are all different. It's, we're right. def, you're defining these roles, different right. roles. So, and, and as a stylist, from my experience, like, you know, we've dealt with plenty of them as a vintage store because mm-hmm. I want to come borrow, buy vintage. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have dealt with the stylists over the years. Mm-hmm. So, okay, continue on. Um, and then there's the – when you say personal shopping, I guess, you know, it's sim- it's similar, like, you know, what is you're presenting somebody with options to buy or whatever. Um, I don't know that I've really done that so much, but selling to celebrities is, is, you know, been a big part of my business. Um, but it's just another sale, right? Like for me, like it was always like this, trying to do this balancing act of like, you know, I've never gifted people stuff, you know, like occasionally if I was homies with somebody, I would give them something or whatever, or, you know, sell at cost if, you know, but the whole idea of like, for me, like I was as a, at trying to create a brand, like if you, if you tag vintage, right, it's one of a kind, right? I can't re, I can't sell another one of those things, right? Like, I, I never really found value in like that, that marketing aspect of it. I mean, I never really got a lot of value out of selling to Kanye or Travis Scott or, you know, we would repost these photos when I had like social media people, you know, my staff members working on the social media when I, that's why I say we, um, and you know, I, I sold a lot of those grails to those guys that then became things that people were looking for. You know, and that almost creates a Frankenstein because it drives the prices up, you know, on those on those particular shirts. Um, But I never saw like I never got me personally like I know other people maybe have, but 
I never really got a lot of value out of people tagging or reposting vintage because then people come and look for that one thing. And if you don't have it, like what, you know, maybe you get more followers a little bit, but I didn't really, uh, I just, yeah. I just look so, at, I got to the point where like, I, I look at it as another sale. That's it. Like it doesn't. And maybe because that person has more money, they can buy higher end stuff or whatever. But, um, and I was certainly conscious of having that clientele and that was an asset, but I, I'm not going to act like it. I didn't know like, Oh, I, th- that's important to have or whatever. But I, I, I just look at it like, it's 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 just commerce. Yeah. In you the beginning, it was exciting. You don't for sure, give, like you know, having oh, sorry. you know Winona Ryder sitting on the floor of your store, like going through shirts, and like you're like, oh, she's dope, she's cute, you know, like this is cool, like you know, and there's some cachet to that, but ultimately, and also you eventually have developed some personal relationships with mm-hmm. people, but it's just same as a relationship with anybody else you would develop, yeah. you know, and. You say that you don't gift things, which it's a good point to discuss here. You know, why don't you gift things? Because then that's expected. You know, I don't think uh, that was just always my policy. You know, like I, I don't gifting vintage is pointless. You know, maybe now it's a little different with social media. You know, like maybe there's, there, you know, you know, somebody will post something and tag you and then it'll direct traffic to you but i just never saw really the value in it you know if you have somebody if you put a manufactured shirt on somebody and they tag you in that and they can go to a website and buy that specific thing then you'll get multiple sales of that right in some cases not you know like i mean i had one of the shirts that and i made so manuf- to clarify here would you gift a kelly cole brand manufactured piece I would, yeah, I would do that sometimes, definitely. Yeah, but not not the vintage Correct. piece because they, can, like you said, there's no there's no more of those to go buy. Maybe that is an expensive shirt. Maybe you won't even find it again. So it's you're just giving your hard work away for very very right. little return, if any return. Well, and uh, yeah, I, I just I just never saw that translate into the return that, that it would do on a manufactured good. Like it just somehow falls flat. Like it just would like, it just didn't get the traction that you would expect it to for some, for whatever reason. I don't know. I mean, yeah. it's the, and, it's and maybe it's, that's, well, it's you, you could, anybody could take any picture of any celebrity off the internet, mm-hmm. post it on their Instagram mm-hmm. and say, Hey, check out this Nirvana shirt on so-and-so from me. Which is absolutely – Nobody's fact-checking exactly. this. Which, which has absolutely you, you, happened to me many times. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, not, we're not getting specific names no. here but uh, this kind of thing happens in the business mm-hmm. all the time. And who's to say it was your shirt or wasn't your shirt mm-hmm. or even if it is your shirt, what difference does it make? Because it could have been that guy's shirt. Right. So – It doesn't matter. Um, you know, I can absolutely tell you that – you know. You know, yeah, there, uh, there were definitely time. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, it, it does it, because exactly the reasons you're saying, like, oh wow, great, you did that, you know, like that, you know, maybe somebody will look at you, and again, it comes down to like maybe it's like an ego thing or whatever, like, oh, I need to validate that I did that, but what does it really mean, you know? 
I sold him a vintage T-shirt. Yeah, totally. Um, very interesting. And, you know, so would you <laughs> like this world of, of – uh, being a, a dealer to the celebrities. We'll call it that because that's what it is, right? A dealer to the celebrities. Um, I guess there's a few people that are doing that as like their sole income potentially. But there's not really that many. Like there's do – you, do you know many people doing that? Um, I mean, yeah. I think there. I think there's people that have a celebrity and a high-end clientele that, that – uh, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, the, those people exist. Like, would pay most sure. most of their income, yeah. Probably, I mean, for me, like, I don't really deal directly with that many people anymore. Like, I I do have a few clients that I deal, but but I have like wholesale accounts, and and I um, uh, you know, I'm starting. I have people request stuff, um, and you know, like on on Instagram or whatever. And I'm actually starting to, I'm gonna, I'm starting to curate some things that I'm gonna put on Instagram because I feel like I I, I just want to do that again. Um, but yeah, I don't, um, I'm sorry. I got off the question. <laughs> no, I don't know. I just think that it's, it's, a, it's a tough world to live in. It I is. know you were it's, there. It's rarefied. It's, it's to it's, have that as your sole thing. Yeah. I mean, you're, you, you know, again, it, it's like being diversified is very important. You know, like if you're only selling like mega expensive rap tees, like how many people are buying that? You know, the guy's that you see that are sellers at the bowl that, that do well are the guys that have that and they also have mids and they have low, you know, like you can't survive on that. Like, you know, and I, I buy a lot, I, I buy a lot of different stuff, you know, like I don't just buy super expensive teas, but, but it's all sort of within an aesthetic, you know, it may be stuff that other people don't value as much, but to me, I, I really like it, you know, and, and, and I champion it and promote it. And that's important to touch on too, because the curation doesn't isn't tied to a value. The curation is not tied to a value. It's tied to your taste, your mm-hmm. aesthetic that you're looking to put forward, right? Yeah, I mean, what I think is cool, and and you know, mostly like, you know, like a lot of the stuff is, and I'm not saying it's because of me, but a lot of the stuff that I championed when no one cared about it has caught really caught on, like movie tees, and like, you know, I remember like. I would have a stack of like Pulp Fiction and like, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and, and I was getting it very cheap and even like out at the Rose Bowl and places because people didn't really, I, f- I feel like at that time didn't really care about that. So it's gotten harder with some things, you know, cause they've become very, very expensive. So I can't even touch them. So I have to find other things that are, um, because you know, some of the pricing out there, right. Even though I have this high client, high end clientele, like they're not paying $2,000 for a natural born killers t-shirt. You know, the stuff that's like the grails in the t-shirt world don't necessarily translate over into the, you know, the, the, the real world for lack of a better term. Some of it does, but not most of it does not, you know? Um, yeah. Like people who are buying in that world, are in, are into fashion. They just want yeah. something that looks good. They want they want a aesthetic. They do not care if it's a mosquito head or uh, whatever else is popular at the time. So that like yeah, it, it it's interesting. That doesn't that doesn't really translate. Um, 
I lost I lost my train of thought on that one, but we'll move we'll move along. <laughs> um, so hold on here. Consult your notes. We'll have to bleep this one out. We'll bleep this moment out. That's okay. Um, fuck! I had a good topic to get onto, and I totally forgot it. Anything you want to cover that we haven't got into yet? Hmm. I mean, I got a couple more notes still, but not. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Oh, I had a really good topic to jump into. T-shirts, t-shirts. Oh, okay. Well, let's let's just go here. Okay. Um, so you're a super OG. Um, obviously, you've been in this for a long, long time, longer than myself, and my brother. Even though we grew up in it, but we weren't like heavy into it even back in those days. You know, like you were. Well, I don't know. You guys so, have been in it for a long time. And your story. Yeah, is we fun. were like, I guess, I guess, true. Like Jesse was selling early two thousand, so I mean, it's similar time frames. Yeah. So, you know, you've but even from the beginning, you were heavy into you were heavy into t shirts. You were mm-hmm. heavy into that that world. You've seen umpteen millions of t shirts mm-hmm. go through your hands mm-hmm. while you're picking and what's going on. And you've seen the people come and go. And you've seen mm-hmm. the you know being in L A. It's like such a fashion center of the world. Essentially, you've seen. All the different trends come and go. So, you know, we had a crazy year, 2020, kind of touched on that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, where do you see it going? And like, obviously it's changed so much for you. It's changed for everybody. You know, where do you see the future of this this game? Well, you know, it's funny. Like, th- there have been several points over the years where people have – because, I, you know – I've always been selling t-shirts with, you know, it took a dip for a couple years, but really for 20 years, I've been buying and selling t-shirts at that level. Prices have gone up on a lot of things, but you know, people, people, there've been several points where people are like, Oh, this thing's going to bottom out, right? Oh, this is going to end. No, people are going to say, but it never has t-shirts never have denim never has like, it shifted from 517s and 646s and 684s back to 501s. 501s have always been big in Japan, but like then it got domestically really big with, you know, and then it was like expanding from double X to made in the US to the, you know, that there's always room for um, when there's one thing that's lacking, it expands and it seems to include like the, 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 the parameters get moved. Right. And so like with t-shirts, like, it got moved to nineties and now like two thousands, like are we still going to see the crazy, crazy, crazy prices that people were paying on lives for Aladdin t-shirts and whatnot? Like probably not, but is there always going to be a market for vintage t-shirts? Yeah. People love vintage t-shirts, you know, and, and the good, and the good news is they made a lot of t-shirts, you know, for, for every, for every pair of jeans people had, they had how many t-shirts in the, 70s 80s 90s you know like there were a lot made you know bands that toured made a lot of shirts you know there's um where do i see it going i i mean i i think that you know the parameters will move early 2000 stuff will start to you know become more and more desirable as as the kids that that experience that as their thing like you know get older but um 
I think that just generally, like, you know, people are always going to want vintage t-shirts. Like there's something about it that like beyond the like fade and wear and whatever that, that people want to wear, you know, that's like, cause I sometimes question it myself. I'm like, well, why would you, you know, like, why would you pay that for that? And, and when you can, you know, there's this like devil's advocate part of me that happens and I go, yeah, but that's just so much cooler. Like, you know, it was there, like it's better than the reproduction. It was at that concert or it was in that, you know, that's a real promo from that video game or whatever it is, you know, like there's just something about that knowing that it's connected to history in, in, in a way that like, we don't have that much history culturally anyway, as a, as a country, like as a, a you know, popular culture is our, is our history and our stamp. Our yeah. Trademark. Because like, because America's a young country, yeah. right? Not much, not that deep. So, so, so those things have a, have and a, those things are like, are, are representing, you know, they represent badass subcultures or whatever they are within American pop culture. Mm-hmm. And like the denim, it's like a staple of, it, it like represents America to a mm. degree and it, it, it's never going away. Yeah. That, and I, that, that. And I think sure, certain, yeah, certain things are going to just, you know, will become more valuable, like uh, that are artifacts of a thing, you know, like punk shirts, th- those are artifacts, you know, like there, there weren't a gazillion of those made in most cases. There weren't, you know, like just as one example, I think those will always increase in value. Um, and I think because that, you know, that's a period that's immortalized, you know, like there are certain things like that within it that, that I think will, will always, uh, hold a value. Um, so give us a couple more predictions, Kelly. You got anything else you think is going to go up in value or down in value? Um, well, I just think all the, like the, I think that the personally, I think like the Marvel stuff is like, you know, that, that can't sustain. I mean, already, like I see the same stuff over and I'll ask just out of curiosity. There's some that I think are really beautiful. And I'm like, no one's paying you that money. No one, no one's giving you that money. Like that. I just feel like I see the same ones over and over and over. And that's got to start to come down. And I mean, there's a couple shirts over the past year that I knew guys had that they were asking huge money a year ago. And I was able to negotiate this year to get, you know, so, um, I think that, yeah, I think that definitely the Marvel stuff is going to come down. Um, I don't know. know. It's tricky. (laughs) It's tricky when you go to that, the future projections, what's going to come up, what's going to go down. I don't want to say rap tees because I think there is a lot of desire for those. Uh, I don't, I mean, grunge shirts seem to be like holding, you know, or in some cases improving, um, you know, uh, but the inflated things like Disney and Marvel, like I just don't see that there, there's that much desire for that stuff out there, you know. Yeah, and there's a, totally. there's so much Disney stuff out there, you know. And when you look at it, like people have great memories of Disney. It's like everyone who went to Disneyland or whatever those memories are tied to. But it's not badass. It's not like it's not cool it's, it's just not, not fashion cool. that all over print aladdin shirt is is goofy you know it's like you're not gonna get like you know 
yeah, you're, as you said, it's not really fashion. I mean, to one person, it is fashion, right? Like, you know, look, I mean, I love Jeremy Scott and I love a lot of what he says, but like, you know, you, maybe his customer like wants that, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know, but yeah, it just doesn't feel like that's sustainable. Like, the, and I, I it's think very different probably already, from what you've done, like you've, you've stay, stayed in the rock and roll lane to a degree. Well, your whole career. yeah, for the most part, but I do buy, I do buy Disney. I do buy like a lot, you know, I love, I love those like all over print, you know, tiny tuned shirts and stuff like I think those are art you know I think they're rad but like just the like movie like the Lion King promo or the the Aladdin promo going for so much money like it's like nah I can't that won't (laughs) you know totally okay so Kelly uh I will be seeing you in another week at the Rose Bowl very excited what very excited. This is like so much time with you lately. We just spent a yeah. week in Toronto. Oh, I got to ask about Canada. You oh. came up to Canada. Yeah. And, you know, you've been to Canada before, but, you know, give us your take. What What do you think of Canada? Are all yeah. the stereotypes true? I love Are the people. Are we all just really nice? Everybody's great. Um, I had a great time. You guys put on an amazing show. I'm not saying that because you. you did Thank it. You. Like it was – epic that you pulled that together and had that many people come through and the vendors do as well as they did on such a short notice like in the location it was in it was like wow man that was amazing and big shout out to mark and jesse and the old clothing show for that one yeah and uh that was sick and i mean i was amazed at how much how many vintage stores there are in toronto there i mean we went to at least 20 stores and I couldn't believe, you know, like in L.A., I can't think of 10 good stores. Like I was amazed and I was amazed at the influence of like the round two culture on the aesthetic of what people were doing. Like the influence that Sean and those guys have had is amazing. Um, and I was yeah, just Toronto, amid- Toronto is a, is a, is a microcosm of like the vintage world. There's so much, uh, stores there. There's so many people selling. There's more than it, in New there York. There is a lot of stores. There's more than in LA, yeah. you know, I would say so. I mean, there seems to be a ton of rag there and there, there's a lot of guys in, in, in the game there. It's pretty, pretty interesting. Like, and there has been like, it's, it has a deep history. Well, first in in the garment production business way back, and mm-hmm. then in in the rag business. So there's a lot of people there. There's a lot of dealers. A lot of the old dealers had Toronto on like their route as part of their buying trips. You yeah. Know? And, yeah, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was so, awesome. I mean, I want to go back in the summer and experience it. In when it's warmer, I was pretty cold while I was there. Yeah, we had a snowstorm. Yeah, in the middle of the event. <laughs> Uh, well, it was great to have you in Canada, Kelly, because, you know, we're always uh, we're always throwing the word hoser around. So we finally got you up there. <laughs> yeah. Eh? So what's next, Kelly? What's uh, what's on the docket? What's coming up? Coming up in my life. Um, in your life. You know, just just hitting it hard, vintage buying. And uh, I'm going to be going to Europe this summer uh, for a bit. Probably going to see Jesse in London. That's exciting. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, okay, we got to uh, we got to say so. If, if anybody listening, anybody out there wants to try to test their 
their eye and see if they can sell Kelly something that matches his <laughs> curation. <laughs> hit him up on Instagram. The Instagrams have been sitting on the screen the whole show already. So definitely hit him up. Go follow Kelly um, and see if you can sell him something. Do you have any um, – oh, one last thing I would like to talk about okay. is um, is mental health. Mm. You, you want to go there for a sec? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, I think this is valuable for a lot of people to hear. So, you know, a lot of people um, – you know, why I stopped drinking myself was like heavy anxiety. I needed to stop. I felt like it wasn't being productive for my life. It was kind of putting me in a bad mental realm. I wasn't being a good manager or boss to my employees, mm. which was a big thing. And I realized that I needed to make a change in my own life. But I think like mental health is a topic that is more accepted now. And I like talking about it on here, especially with people that have experience um, in a positive way. So mm. when I saw you, we talked about you've done ketamine therapy. Is mm-hmm. it, is it what it's called? Ketamine, ketamine therapy? infusion therapy. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've definitely, I, I struggled with depression and was diagnosed with treatment resistant depression. So I would have bouts of, of depression that were very difficult and, and, um, were, uh, resistant to, uh, conventional means. And so, yeah, I, I did, I did do ketamine therapy and it was a game changer. It was, it was life changing for sure. Um, it's an, it's, it enabled me to have a consistent, uh, baseline of just a, definitely uh, a more even, um, positive, uh, baseline. So when you say like treatment resistance, so over the years trying different things that mm-hmm. work for a minute, but don't work and right. then whatever. And the doctors had said like, we've, we've kind of exhausted our means on this. Problem. Right. Yeah. SSRIs, um, you know, typically have a, a, a 30% success rate. And they're saying that like microdosing psilocybin and ketamine infusion has somewhere between 85 and 95. I've heard most people say over 80%. Um, and you know, of, of I, the psychiatrist that I, that I work with had said that in a, in addition to, well, she said that of 400 patients she had, she has had recommended ketamine for 12 other people and, and myself. And of those 12, before she, she recommended it to me, uh, it only didn't work for one. So one out of 12 is 90 some percent, right? Um, that's pretty incredible success rate. Um, yeah, huge. Do they say that it, it, it does similar similar things to the brain as psilocybin? Yes, and similar to ayahuasca. Also. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. I, it makes me happy that it that it that it works so well for you, you know. I have people in my life who are probably going to try it out and I think if anybody else out there uh is in similar boat, um look into it. Check yeah. it out. You know, maybe it's maybe it's a means to help you in your own life. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I think, uh, you know, mental health is, it's, it's tricky. Like over the past few years, there's been a, a lot more awareness and a lot more, uh, uh, dialogue about it in the popular, uh, arena. Um, 
But it's still one of those things, right, where if you have a broken leg, you could see that you have a broken leg and there's a there's a treatment that's a, an accepted standard of treatment that is, is applied to that, right? But when you have depression, there's still so many people that don't understand it. You know, it, it, depression and anxiety are very real and only becoming a more, more uh, 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 prevalent in our society with, with things moving faster and, you know, the, the acceleration of, 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 of uh, technology and the pressures of life. Like it, it's, it's, you know, becoming a bigger and bigger thing, I feel. Uh, my understanding is that it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And so, uh, you know, I, I think it's important for us to, you know, for people to talk about it and, and to understand that, like, it's not a sign of weakness to get help. It's, it's, it's a sign of strength to surrender and ask for help. Um, and I could, you know, I am, am so grateful to the people that have helped me and the, and the, uh, uh, recovery communities that I've been a part of that have been, you know, extraordinary, uh, gifts in my life. Um, you know, and the whole thing with substance abuse is like, you know, if your life, if you're not getting, um, if you're not, you know, reaching, You know, if you, I don't know how to say it in a general way, but like if you're not living at the level you want to and you, and you know, you find that, that it's substances are a part of that, then get help. You know, life is too short and too great to, to spend in a, in a haze and to be unhappy. I believe that Kelly, (laughs) I believe that, um, that was awesome. It was awesome having you on the show, man. Oh, thanks. Thank you for coming on, Thank dude. you for having me. And uh, is there anybody that you want to thank last minute shout outs here before we end? Mm, I just want to thank everybody I've met on this journey. You know, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I've, it's, uh, um, you know, all the people I meet everywhere I go in this business, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, most always, a, most always a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure being your friend for all these years. Yes, indeed, man. You know, a lot of people a lot of people come and go out there in this business and we've managed to stay tight and mm-hmm. uh I look forward to coming and hanging out with you all the time and I'm yeah, sure indeed. same. I always look forward to seeing you. And I know you've touched a lot of other people in this business the same way cuz you know, you've you're out there, you're picking, you're doing it, you're going to the fleas, you're at the Rose Bowl almost every time. Mm-hmm. Um you are a staple to me in this world. So I appreciate you, Kelly. I appreciate you too, Drew. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. Much appreciated. You're going to have to wait till next week for another one. I got tons of great guests lined up for you. This is three weeks of consistent episodes. Wow. Look at me go. If you guys want to support the show, you can support for as little as two bucks a month. Patreon link down below. Kelly answers some bonus questions on the Patreon. One is his major top tips for opening a retail location. Another one is his top um, vintage stores in the LA area. You don't want to miss those. They're on the Patreon now. Thank you guys again, and we will see you next week on another episode of Vintage and Stuff.